Glad to be here this morning uh, after being gone the, the week prior to last week. I was here last week and got to hear Blake preach and got to hear part of Blake preach the week before that through recording, but we had some recording malfunctions, so I, uh, I didn't get to hear all of it. Uh, I'm thankful, thankful to be back. It's always nice to be able to take a break and uh, it's nice to take a break from preaching for me because when I come back I'm you know even if it's a week or two it rejuvenates me it makes me sort of realize that um, you know I I miss it you know I this is I take it for granted a little bit when you're doing it all the time and um which is, you know, I will concede to Blake's point, even though uh, many holidays are corporate holidays, I will concede to Blake's point that Mother's Day is a holiday we celebrate for the same reason. You know, we appreciate our mothers, we appreciate our, our wives that are mothers, but, you know, when you see them do the things that they do over and over again, you forget just how special they are and just how much of a sacrifice it is for the things that they do. So it is a good idea to have little reminders periodically um, of how thankful you are for them. Uh, it's also a reminder when Blake preaches um, how thankful I am for him. Um, and not just Blake, but all of the leaders and, and all of you, but Blake specifically, because that's what I'm talking about. I'm thankful for Blake uh, and his commitment to passing, um, to passing along or to taking the torch, I guess, um, of upholding scriptural truth and preaching, upholding the importance of putting the Word of God first. And uh, he said it last week, and I think it's very important. Um, he said, you know, this is a lot of verses of the Bible, but the only thing that we're going to do today that is, uh, I know this is not original to him, but uh, since he said it, I'll give him credit for it. Uh, the only thing that we're going to do today that is completely infallible is read the infallible Word of God. Word, and yeah. so we keep reading uh, that Word. We keep reading that Bible, and we make sure that that's always a part of what we do. And we, um, in, in the process of reading the Bible, we also do our best to not explain what we think the Bible's saying, but to explain what the Bible is saying. You understand the difference? We do our best not to explain what we think the Bible is saying because everybody has their own interpretations. Everybody has their own view. But uh, not everybody, but many people. But we do our best to explain what the Bible is saying. We don't eisegete. We don't put ourselves in the text. We don't, you know, we're not David. You know, we're not David in the story of David and Goliath. That's eisegesis. Um, when you expose the Scripture for what it is, we're the were the Israelites who are scared and shaking and, and fearful and, and unable. And, and, and Jesus is, is David. Jesus is the one who conquers um, in, in that story. And so we take the Word of God and we find out what the truth is. And friends, you have to believe that as we move through the Exodus, as we move through other books of the Bible, that there is a definitive and absolute truth. There are different takeaways from each thing. Like today, we're going to take away three uh, aspects of applicable things about worship that maybe somebody who preaches this text would not preach in that way. There are different takeaways, but there's only one 
set of absolute truths from each text. Um, so it's important that when I leave, because I hope that you trust me to, to preach the Bible, uh, I've, I've failed at that sometimes, but I've often, as often as I can, I've tried to do that. Hopefully you trust me. But when I leave to have other uh, men come up here and, and stand and preach uh, the inerrant, infallible, sufficient Word of God, um, causes me to have, there was zero worry in my mind the Sunday I was gone. Z- I, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, zero worry. Zero worry. I was able to go to a, another worship service and beyond praying for you guys on that Sunday morning, I didn't think about you again during that whole worship service. I was worshiping in that place. I was worshiping in that time, in that moment, and I wasn't worried about what was going on here. Um, I can't, um, I, you, if if you're a supervisor or a manager or a boss in some capacity, you understand the blessing and, and the, the joy it is to be able to leave the place that you organize and not have to worry um, about what's going on, you know, while you're gone. Uh, today, I hope um, if you haven't, again, sometimes I feel like when Blake preaches, you guys might uh, want to end up replacing me um, before it's all said and done. But if you haven't wanted to replace me to this point, let's open our Bibles and into Exodus, and we'll we'll get into that. Um, we'll get into Exodus again. Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter ten, and again we have a a long set of verses, a large portion of verses of Scripture. I want to jump right into without any further hesitation. Today we're going to look at the eighth and ninth plague, but specifically I want us to look and see how our worship, or how worship in general, relates to these plagues. Will you look, at, uh, look with me in Exodus chapter 10? It's the eighth and ninth plagues, the plague of locusts and darkness. Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, And that you may tell in the hearing of your son, excuse me, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Who is the Lord? Remember, that's the question that has been asked over and over again. But it is also the question that has undoubtedly been answered. Verse 3, so Moses and Aaron went into the Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me or that they may worship me was another uh, word for that service. They can be used interchangeably. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'll bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. Then they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt, this is important, there's some, finally some recognition. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? 
So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for what is, <clears throat> for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hell has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Remember that. Remember that verse. We're going to hit back on it again. Not a single locust was left in all of the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that, they may, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. That's an interesting phrase. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Pray with me this morning. Father God, you are infinite and mighty and majestic. You are matchless. Lord, there is no other like you. You are the one who was and is and is to come. You are holy you are set apart. You are great. Lord, I don't have the vocabulary to express the adjectives 
that you are. But Lord, I do know this, that knowing all we know about you should cause an overwhelming, a powerful, a life-changing, and lifelong sense of reverence and worship of your majesty. Lord, would we always and forever be changed by who you are. And may we tell it as a testimony to our children and our children's children. God, you are good. There is none like you. We've seen it through the word of God and we've seen it in our lives. Help us to practically live that way also. We love you. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Seems like we've traveled such a a long journey through the book of Exodus uh, to not have even gone through the exit part yet. But with each sermon, we are finding a characteristic or a trait of God as he is revealing himself to his people and to his enemies. Over the last few weeks, we have taken a look at God's exit strategy for his people, specifically how God has demonstrated his power for his glory and for his purposes. And again, we reach one of these momentous occasions. Moses and Aaron go back before Pharaoh and they give him a warning of an impending plague. Moses promises to Pharaoh his impending doom. This time, there will be a swarm of locusts that will consume whatever crops are left, essentially leaving nothing green in all of the land of of Egypt. It wasn't enough that most of the crops and green things and edible plants had already been destroyed by hail, but the locusts are going to finish what was remaining. It is reported, um, I, you know, I don't know, by different scientific sort of outlets, that the daily consumption of locusts is equal to its own weight. Uh, that's only intensified when you think about what a major locust swarm is can cover. A major locust swarm can cover a few hundred square miles with the potential of 100 to 200 million locusts being present per mile. This would be a a destruction of epic proportion. As an adult locust weighs about two grams, a swarm like this has the potential to make a place barren for years. A locust swarm was not probably not really uncommon for them. After all, Moses says, you're going to see a swarm like your fathers and your grandfathers have never seen. So it must have been seen before. Uh, You know, fathers and grandfathers could just mean the old people or people that have died, but it also could mean a literal generation. Could mean your fathers saw a locust swarm that destroyed a crop that sent us into sort of a barren time, a famine or something like that. Moses warned it would be unlike anything that they had ever seen, that there would be, you know, and, and so we, we know that this has happened. We know in modern history that this has happened. There have been several plagues reported of this, uh, uh, not of this uh, proportion, obviously, but there have been several plagues that have been reported of, of drastic uh, uh, proportions. It was recorded in the 20s and 30s that locusts cleared out 5 million square miles of Africa. Among, uh, again, in 1954, it was recorded that uh, locusts blotted, they blotted out the sky with the swarm uh, of locusts, again, clearing 
a great land. There have been recorded uh, locust uh, populations or swarms that was an estimated 10,000 locust per square, per 10 square feet. So that's a, if you have a, <coughs> a powder room, if you have a bathroom that sort of has a toilet and a sink in it, you know, in your hallway or whatever, it's about the size of that bathroom. 10,000 uh, 10, locusts per 10 square feet. That's a three by three area, five by two area, something like that. <laughs> that is a lot of bugs. But this is a locust plague greater than had ever been seen or that will come. So the Lord through Moses brings up an eastern wind, which was not typically the way the wind blew. The wind was a western wind for them. And that day and night, the eastern wind came in. And the morning, in the morning, the eastern wind brought a dark cloud over Egypt, a dark cloud of locusts. And the Bible says that the locusts devoured everything that was left by the hell down to even the grass and the trees. Now, this is another plague destroying the will of Pharaoh and his leaders and definitely the people. Remember, this is also the Lord showing his power over these false deities. Blake had pointed out, and I even pointed out in the sermon that I did uh, on the Nile being turned into blood. Um, but I want to point these out again because it's very important that God is not just haphazardly or meaninglessly uh, um, causing plagues over these people. He is doing it with a purpose. The Egyptians worshipped the god Men, which was the god of the crops. And each year they had a festival to celebrate the harvest. Some have conjectured that maybe this time fell on the festival, which would have been more of a slap in the face. I haven't seen any evidence of that, so I don't, I'm not going to say that. But uh, these plagues would have also, um, also indirectly snubbed Isis, which we mentioned before, or Nepri, the god of grain, or Anubis, the god uh, the guardian of the fields, or even Senahim, the protector against pests. The Egyptians would have relied on all of these gods together, their whole pantheon, to protect them from all that has been happening to them. They would have relied specifically on these gods to protect them from a swarm like the locust swarm. But the God of gods has shown that he is over and above any of these deities. Over time, we have slowly seen Pharaoh give in a little by little. Uh, even this week, we notice that he concedes to let the men go or, or to let them go but leave uh, your livestock. You can go and worship, but I'm not going to give in to your demands completely. He never fully repented of doing wrong. He never was fully ready to obey the commands of God. And again, just like the other plagues, Pharaoh calls for Moses and he says, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Pray that your God would remove these. The Lord does. And again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. When Moses prays, uh, the, the locusts were brought in by an east wind. When Moses prays, a west wind comes up. It takes the locusts, it drives them out into the Red Sea and the plague is removed from Pharaoh's heart. Interesting, interestingly enough, this is not just a way of showing how God got rid of the, the plague. Interestingly enough, it's a way of showing how God is about to get rid of Pharaoh. Think about it. The storm, the swarm goes west towards the Red Sea. The swarm goes into the Red Sea 
and the walls of the Red Sea closed down, destroying all of the Egyptian army or the vast majority of the Egyptian army. This is not just how the locusts would leave Egypt, but this is foreshadowing that Pharaoh would drive his swarm towards the Red Sea and he would plunge himself onto it. Well, I don't guess you plunge onto the dry ground of the Red Sea, but he would walk onto the dry ground of the Red Sea and the water would consume him and rid, him, rid the world of his army just like it had of the locusts. That was not the only plague we talked about today. There's another. And I've heard preachers, and I've even said this to you, but I've heard preachers say over time, all of the plagues, they increase in intensity. You probably remember me saying that. You've, I remember Blake saying that last week. But all the plagues, they increase in intensity. And so as hearing that as a young child, I'm like, the ninth one's darkness. Don't you think, like, for me, it was always boils and locusts. Like, that was always the... That was always the nasty one for me. Like, I can't imagine walking with boils on my feet, and I can't imagine dealing with the bugs, okay? And so I'm like, darkness seems like a pretty good respite from the locust that just left. But it's very important that we don't think of this necessarily as a personal attack on the Egyptian people. But it is an attack on their worship and their worship practices. And if anything was going to affect them greatly. If anything was going to affect Pharaoh greatly, it would have been darkness. To this point, all other attacks were an indirect attack on Pharaoh. They were an attack on his God, gods, but they were attacked on his deity indirectly. But darkness is the first that directly attacks Pharaoh. Darkness is the first that directly attacks Pharaoh. From the spectrum of God, this is the most severe plague for this, to this point. Notice there is no warning this time. The Lord gives Moses the command to bring the darkness, and he does. Moses stretched out his hands, and there was darkness for three days. The, the Bible calls it pitch darkness, pitch black in all of Egypt. A darkness, the Bible says, to be felt. I don't know if it's like this, but have you ever been sort of like creeped out by a place that you were where it was super dark, maybe not pitch black, but super dark, or maybe it was pitch black, and the hair rose up on your back, and you, like, for me, I feel muscles in my body tense up, and I'm just like, maybe this is what it meant. Maybe the, the, sheer, the sheer fear that no light brought on in these people, maybe this is what it meant, because here's what the Bible said about their response. They did not see one another they did not rise up from their place for three days. But everywhere where Israel lived, there was light. This darkness was significant, and it was a direct attack on Pharaoh because it proved the Lord's power over a few deities. It proved the Lord's power over Horus, the god of sunrise, over Aten, the god of the midday sun, and over Atum, the god of sunset. But most importantly... This was an attack on the supreme deity, Amun-Ra. This is what is said of Amun-Ra, or Ray, if you're Blake and some other people. I like saying Ra. I am the great God who came into being of myself, he who created his names, he who has no opponent among the gods. This was said of Amun-Ra. 
to take it further, now we see why the darkness is such a great plague because Amun-Ra was the god of the sun disk. He was the creator god. But Pharaoh, as a sun worshiper, but not just a sun worshiper, but was said, each Pharaoh was said to be a son of Amun-Ra or created by Amun-Ra, a god himself who maintained the, uh, the cosmic orders, a mini-me of sorts. This plague was the first of two that directly affected Pharaoh, that cut him to the quick. I found this quote in Philip Ryken's commentary on Exodus. It says, At the kernel of the civilization stands a special relation between the divine father figure of the sun god, ruler of creation, and his solitary offspring on earth, the reigning king of Egypt. This establishes the key relationship in creation between the sun god as the elder partner in the sky and his issue on earth, the junior partner. That was Pharaoh. Within the reign of each king, he alone appears as the living representative of the sun god on earth and enjoys a unique sovereignty in the practical exercise of power. And we see this also. The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh as their god. In school, children were instructed to worship Pharaoh, living forever within your bodies and associate with his majesty in your hearts. He is Ra, by whose beams one sees. He is the one who illuminates the two lands more than the sun disk. Pharaoh eliminates the two lands, illuminates the two lands more than the sun disk, and yet he cannot bring light to his land. To this this point, if I were Pharaoh, I would have tossed the blame onto someone else. I'm doing my part. You know, I'm I'm beseeching the gods. I'm going after them, but but they are not listening. But now the Lord has hit Pharaoh directly where it counts. So Pharaoh concedes again a little bit. He says, you can go, but leave your livestock here. Which, of course, was not what God asked. It was not what Moses asked from the Lord. And now we see this back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses come to a close. I want to pull two thoughts out of plagues 8 and 9 and really just the plagues in general Um, that we really need to sort of, I think we need to take hold of and we need to sort of grasp as we move forward because I think they're important. And the first is this, and these are not like necessarily life-altering, but they're they're important. And I think one of them is sort of informative, informative and one of them is more practical. The first is this, God through the plagues is deconstructing creation. God is deconstructing creation with the plagues. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's important to know it's, it's at least on a level that it's neat. But on another level, we see that the God who has the power to create also has the power to destroy. And that's what he's doing. God, for the Egyptians, is destroying his creation. Sort of uh, like Blake said, you know, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of this world, sort of sense. God, as a means of showing his power, is deconstructing. He's decreating, if you will, the world that he created. And and Pharaoh, son of Ra, the one who supposedly has existed, the one who is the name of names, the one who is, there's none like him, can do nothing about it. In his power, the Lord is showing that he created the world, he controls the world, and he can destroy the world if he wishes. The world is his to do with 
as he pleases. Here's an example. The Lord made the waters. And just like that, he destroyed the waters with the blood in the Nile and all the fresh water systems. He made the plants and the vegetation. And with the hail and locusts, he destroyed the plants and vegetation. He made the creatures on the land and, and the sea. And he brought death to fish and frogs. He made men and beasts, and he also sent disease and death to them. And finally, he said, let there be light. And to Pharaoh, he said, let there be darkness. The sovereign God of the universe, the creator and sustainer, who lives and works in the creation today, he has proven, he has proven that he does what he pleases. That he is in the heavens, and who are we to question his will and his authority? He has proven something much more important, or on equal level, but very important. <coughs> and it's something that leads us into our second idea today. He has proven that if he can make creation by his mouth and his hand, and he can destroy it by his mouth and his hand, that he is worthy to be adored. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be revered. The second point that I want us to draw from this today, that if God can construct and he can deconstruct, that he is worthy of our worship and that worship is being demonstrated through the plagues. Worship is being demonstrated through the plagues. The God who creates and destroys, the God who upholds and removes, the God who is uh, not sovereign over many gods, but he himself is God. The God who gives and takes away. The one true God. A God to be feared. A God to be worshipped. And through this we can see three aspects, of worship, three aspects of worshiping our powerful God that come from Pharaoh's disobedience and the conversation that he has with Moses. And we're going to stick on these three today for the rest of the time. Worship is an awe-inspiring, life-changing, and lifelong movement. That's the first thing you need to see. That's the first thing we see from Pharaoh. Worship are, are these, these, this, this discourse and the plagues. Worship is an awe-inspiring, life-changing, and lifelong movement. Worship, friends, is not an event. It's not a moment of one day. But it is an awe-inspiring, life-changing, and lifelong movement. Worship is awe-inspiring because of who God is. He basically said to Moses, tell your sons and your grandsons how I made sport out of Pharaoh. Tell your sons and your grandsons all <coughs> about it. This power is life-changing because that power is living in us and through us. It is lifelong because when you have been impacted by such a dynamic power, there is no choice but to see significant and lasting change in your life. It's all inspiring because of who God is. It's life-changing because God is the source of that power. And when you've been hit by a power so great, there is no choice but to have some long-lasting, lifelong change. So much so that the command in the first part of Exodus 10 is to tell your sons and your grandsons what the Lord has done to Pharaoh so that they may know that I am the Lord. Essentially, that they may worship just as you have worshipped. Friends, worship is not a moment. And it's not some act. Worship is the awe-inspiring, life-changing, 
and even generational, lifelong, impactful life change. This made Moses and all of the people of Israel responsible for passing the torch of worship. We see later in Deuteronomy 6, in the future when your sons ask, what is the meaning of the stipulation, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord set miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised an oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey his law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Worship for the Old Testament saint was a belief by faith in the works of God in the past and then by faith obeying them in the present and future. Worship was allowing the life of God to run through us, them, and now us so richly and deeply that it changed them to the point where they became storytellers of the greatness of God. Worship for us is believing in the awe-inspiring work of Christ Jesus to rescue us from our slavery and sin. How our life was changed by being placed in the promised land of habitation with God and His people on this earth. And then understanding that it is our calling to share to our children and our children's children and frankly anyone who will listen the great and powerful works of the Lord. Worship is an awe-inspiring, life-changing, and lifelong movement of God. And I want to tell you, friends, this is vastly important. (coughs) This is vastly important. Vintage Church, for one moment, you cannot relent on the truth of the gospel. You cannot relent on the truth of the scriptures. Friends, you want to know why people want to erase a literal creation away from the history books? Because it causes people to worship God if they have to believe that a God by his mouth can create heaven and earth. It causes people to worship God if they believe for one second that a God by his mouth and the works of his hands can create every living being, can create every man, woman, and child, can separate the oceans. You want to know why they want to take away a a literal flood from the text of the Bible? Because it causes people to worship. If you can believe for one moment that there is a mighty and great God that it with just one word of his mouth, one snap of his finger can flood the whole earth and destroy all of humanity and create it back again if he wanted to. You want to know why the things of God are, are taken away from the Bible? You want to know why we can't relent? Because when we see those things, when we believe those things, when we trust those things, we revere God for who he is and we worship him. You want to know why we can't relent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You want to know why we can't relent on the commands of God through Jesus Christ, the miracles that he performed? Because when we see those things of God, when we see the things that he did, we worship him in reverence. We worship him in truth. 
Friends, the reason those people want to take those things out of the Bible is not because science has proven differently. It's because people don't want to worship the God that has, has been prescri- uh, prescribed through the book of the Bible. If people don't want to worship that, and if you take those things away, then you can worship a God as you have prescribed and as you have written. Worship is an awe-inspiring, life-changing, lifelong movement because of the movement of an awe-inspiring and worthy God in your life. My saying that I've used a million times is, no one gets hit by a bus and is not, if you live through it, you're not changed forever. That bus, if you live through it without any damage, you still are changed by the impact of that bus forever. I guarantee someone who lives through getting hit by a bus never walks across the street again without looking both ways, maybe twice. You're impacted. Your life is changed. When you get hit with such dynamic power, the only response is to revere that power, is to worship that power. And the reason worship for Christians should come more naturally is because of the power that is flowing in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Not because of the obligation of the church or the body of Christ. Not because of some stipulation put on you through the Bible. Friends, worship in the Bible is recorded as the natural acts of believers. It's not recorded so you can know what to do. It's recorded so when you do those things, you can see them as the acts of God. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand? The worship in the Bible isn't recorded so you can know what to do. It's recorded because that's what they were doing when they were being changed by God. And when you do those things, you don't look like a fool because that's what you're doing when you're changed by God. When the dynamic power of God is running through you, life is changed and it is so overwhelming that you can't contain it. But I will tell you, genuine worship will never come by chipping away at the things that make God great, that make him awe-inspiring. Take away his truth and his law, he's a little less inspiring. Take away his resurrection, he's a little less inspiring. Take away the works he's done through the Old Testament. He's a little less inspiring. Andy Stanley, uh, who can barely be called a pastor anymore, Andy Stanley said this week that conservative or Christians in general should unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Should unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Because what you do is this. You can take away the inspiring acts of God and then you can be some heathen little worshiper of self in a building that you call a church with people that you call Christians, but neither of them are true. When you take away the inspiring things of God, you take away the reason to worship Him. And He's not the one that changes. You're the one that's missing the mark. I'm the one that's missing the mark. Worship is an awe-inspiring, life-changing, life-long movement. And if it's not that, then it's not Christian worship. Worship is communal. That's another thing. Worship is communal. Pharaoh was giving, uh, I, I know it's warm in here, but sort of when I work up a little lather up here, I feel like things are going well. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you're warm, but it's getting me going a little bit. So anyway, all right. Worship is communal. Pharaoh was giving in a little when he said, well, take some of your people. Uh, you can take the men. 
uh, patriarchy as, at its finest. But you can take them in. And, and this wasn't an answer good enough for Moses. And it, it wasn't good enough for the Lord. Moses is not only uh, answering Pharaoh's half-hearted exception here. But he is also stating something much more important. When he says, Pharaoh, worship for you might be for the men. But worship for us is for the people. And by this, we can learn that God's call is for all people man, woman, and child, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worship is a movement that happens through men. Worship is a movement that happens through women. Worship is a a movement that happens through children. And in the Christian faith, if not all of these, then there is something missing. If there's not, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be a feminist here, I'm not, trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to be a social justice warrior, but if there's not a place for all of these people to worship in the Christian faith, then we are missing out. We are missing out on God's calling for communal worship. God's call is for all people, man, woman, and child, to worship Him. Worship is a movement for the community. Now I want to say that there is personal worship. We know that. There is personal worship. I'd say as a growing Christian, most of your worship, the majority of your time spent in worship will be spent in personal worship probably. But have you noticed, maybe it's just me, but have you noticed that times of communal worship to at least seem rich and deep? And there's something about it when not only you, not only you by yourself or me by myself, but we come together and worship God. Listen, I've been in, in, in groups, uh, and you probably, you may have been in larger churches before, but I've been in, in groups of people, of thousands of men and women and children raising their voices to the Lord. I'm not sure that there's anything more beautiful. I've seen men and women, thousands of men, women, and children read the scriptures off the board in worship. I'm not sure there's anything more beautiful. I've seen thousands of men, women, and children write down notes and, and, and study and listen when the, when the pastor is rightly dividing the Word of God. I'm not sure that there's anything more beautiful. Friends, the reason is, is that God said it's not good for man to be alone. He didn't just mean I'm going to create a helper. I'm going to create somebody that he can coexist with. He meant it's not good for man to worship by himself. And I'm going to create this woman so that man and woman can worship together in community. And they'll create children. And they will worship together in community. The reason God created a helpmate for Adam is so that they could worship together as a body and not be by themselves. You think God does anything else but for his glory? There may be secondary reasons, but God's primary reasons for anything is for his glory. And God's reason for creating Eve, for creating Adam, was so that they worship Him. They worship Him together. So worship as a community happens, I think, in two places most specifically. It happens in the family. We are made to express this worship of God in our family. If you are not married and you don't have children, this still applies to you. But we are made to worship in the family. And as Stephen has stated before, we are created to worship, so we'll be worshiping something. But God reminds Moses to make worship of God be the forefront of his mind and the mind of his children and the mind of his grandchildren. Worship is ingrained in our family. It is seen in the things that we love and that we surrender to. It is seen in the things that we give our time to and our heart. 
we give our emotions to. The Lord wanted Moses to pass down to his children and grandchildren the truth that he was the only God of the Hebrews or for anyone else. And that all the Egyptian gods or any other gods were nothing compared to him. Friends, I want you to know he wants you to pass that same truth to your children and to your children's children. So my question to you is, are you passing down this revered, reverent truth of God? Is that what you're passing down practically? Is that what you're passing down with your mouth to your children or to your children's children? If your children were able to formulate who they thought your gods were, what would they say? If your husband or wife recorded your day and, and what you did and what you loved and what you gave your time to, what would it look like? What would they say? Maybe they thought you worshiped the god Sony. He's the god of entertainment. I don't know if you knew. Or maybe it was Samsung. Or maybe if they drew a picture of your idol, it would be an apple with a bite taken out of it. Or maybe it would be an F with a little square around it. Maybe they think your boss, uh, maybe they think your God's name is Supervisor, the God of financial stability. Maybe that your throne room looks a lot like a couch, the God of rest, because after all, I deserve it. Maybe they couldn't formulate what your worship looked like, so the page would be blank and we would just call it the God of indifference. So I ask you, what is your worship now telling your wife, your husband, the next generation, and the generation after that? What is the testimony of your worship? Is the testimony of your worship that there is a God to be revered and the response of, of my reverence to him is worship and obedience and sacrifice? Or is it something else? I think you can do a few things simply, friends, to sort of right the ship if it isn't right for you. I think uh, if you're married, and even if you're not, you can make a practice to worship with your family as often as you can. Listen, it's hard. I want to tell you, my wife and I are making plans right now, but we've never been, I want to just confession, I guess, we've never been consistent in worship with family. Never been consistent. We're making a plan right now to make it a lifestyle change. But you want to know why my wife and I haven't been consistent in worship in family? Because before we had kids, we didn't worship together. Before we had children, we didn't worship together. And we thought, well, when we had children, we'll, do, we'll be more consistent. And now we'll pray with the kids and we'll read the Bible some and we'll have, you know, even Ellie's reading and she'll read Bible stories to us or she'll read different things to us. And we say, you know what? When they're all just a little bit older, we'll get together and we'll sit down and we'll do it. The problem is there's never a time like the present to start worshiping in the community of believers. There's never a time like the present to start that practice. Worship with your family. Institute simple and attainable ways. Don't do something stupid and crazy. Just do it easy. Just start praying with people that you love. Start praying with people that you love on a consistent basis. Do it quickly. Do it two minutes, five minutes. Do it quickly. Make it turn into something else when you long for more, or when seasons of your life are more difficult, or seasons of your life are more uh, seemingly blessed. Do it in simple and attainable ways. And this is very important, because this is where I have failed as a husband. Prioritize that 
as one thing that is never pushed off of your calendar. Prioritize that as one thing that is never pushed off of your calendar. You can make simple and attainable ways. You can promise to do it right now, and you can even start right now. But if you don't prioritize communal worship with your family as something to never be pushed off your calendar, it will undoubtedly be pushed off your calendar. Worship is for the community. It's for the family, but it's also for the people. Worship is for the people. We were created to worship together. We thrive and we garner energy from the worship of others. We are encouraged. We are lifted up. We are challenged. It happens that way because it was God's plan for us to share our experiences, our life, the gifts that we have, to move them and push them together to worship together. But yet we come here on Sunday mornings, we come to our missional community gatherings, and we worship half-heartedly. We're not present. I talked about it a little bit last week at the end of the week. We don't participate. We're on our phones. We don't take notes during the sermons. So we don't have anything to offer on Wednesday nights other than our opinion or something that is just an echo of what was already said on Sunday. We are not present in worship. Friends, I want to tell you, if I could guarantee that every Sunday people came here ready to worship and it was, a, it was smaller than this crowd right now, or I could guarantee that I would have a larger crowd but there would be, it would be full of people who were indifferent or not ready to worship who didn't care, I would always choose the smaller crowd. Because listen, you may not believe this, you may not depend on it, but my life is a word I'm gonna, I don't want to use, but I'm not going to use, arduous during the week, we can say, I need you. I need you. I need you to be on top of your game every week because I need you to lift me up when I'm not. And I need to be there on top of my game every week because I need to lift you up when you're not. Because, friends, I can't, listen, even if I'm practicing personal worship every day, I can't make it throughout the week without us coming together and worshiping together in spirit and truth, encouraging each other, bringing our gifts, lifting us up. But often I'll tell you, I leave Sunday mornings at least disappointed on some level. Not with everything or everybody, but by something. What can we do to make sure we're taking advantage of this? Be present. Be present. This is the only time all week that I ask you to be just here. And if you think about it, there is no other time all week where you're just there, maybe except sleeping. Sleeping is the only other time all week where you're just doing what you're doing. We've got so many distractions and so many other things. There's never a time that you're just doing what you're doing. When you're talking with your wife or your husband, you're also on your phone typically. Or you're also cooking or you're also watching the children and, or changing a diaper or, you know, whatever. Try not to go crazy, whatever it may be. <laughs> this is the only time of the week that you can be absolutely present in what you're doing for the, you know, for the vast majority of it. Participate. Participate. Man, I'll tell you what, there is nothing more uplifting than to see me, me ever, come for me to come here on Sunday morning and to see you sing, to see you read your Bible to see you take notes, to see you be a part of it. And there is nothing more discouraging to see you do the opposite of that. It's discouraging. 
It doesn't hurt my feelings on a personal level because I know that I can preach pretty well. I don't need need you to remind me of that. It hurts my feelings on a level that I know that you're missing out. I know that you are not participating, and I know that we are all missing out because you are not providing your gifts to the church. Be proactive. Don't just participate. Don't just... Don't just be present, but be proactive. Find ways that you can add to what we're trying to do. Be ready to worship. Friends, I'm telling you, if Sunday morning is the first time you've thought about worship, there is something wrong. You need to call yourself backslidden or you need to call yourself not a Christian. If Sunday morning is the first time you're preparing your heart to worship the creator God of the universe who gives an awe-inspiring, life-changing, lifelong movement in your life, then there is something wrong. You are either dead for the moment or you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Either way, you need to repent and believe the truth of the gospel. Because what we find, and I'm going to go through this quickly because I've been trying to keep it to, I've been trying to get done at 1145 and it's 1150. Worship is all or nothing. Worship is all or nothing. Pharaoh kept bargaining bargaining with God. Well, I'll let you go worship, um, but you can't leave the land. That was one of the first things he said. Or I'll I'll let you go, but it's only the men. That was another thing he said. Or I'll, I'll let you go, but you must leave your livestock. God wants full obedience and undivided attention in our worship. Now, friends, you obviously know. I I don't need to say this because I've said this to you a thousand times. This doesn't mean perfection. This doesn't mean you'll, you'll always get it right. This doesn't mean you won't have sour moments. I'll tell you, I was in a sour mood before I went on vacation. It's amazing what 10 days of uh, no work will do for you. But um, I, was in, I, was, I was in a sour mood uh, before I went on vacation. And uh, I wasn't in a, a mindset ready to worship. I wasn't in a mindset ready to work. I wasn't in a mindset ready to be a good husband or a good dad. And, um, and that moment of rest helped me. Um, but we're not always going to have those. So as often as we can, we need to be supporting each other. We need to be lifting each other up so that when the sourness comes for Stephen and Lexi, I can be there and know that it's there. You know, when it comes for Justin, I can be there and know that it's there. When it comes for Blake, who is an integral part of this Sunday morning worship service, I can be there and know that it's there, or you can be there. and And friends, I can't be the only one doing it. And the, and the elders of the church can't be the only ones doing it. And the deacons of the church can't be the only ones doing it. Worship is an all or nothing type thing. This is a, if you want to know how to do that, there's no other practical step than just this. Realize how revered God is to be and practice the mortification of the flesh daily. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Give up your rights. Give up your privileges. Die to yourself. Obey the Lord. Follow Him. Trust in Him. Revere Him. Believe the gospel. Repent. Have faith. I want you to pray with me today. God, you are good, you are holy, you are worthy. There is none like you. You are to be revered and to be worshipped above all others. Would you forgive us when we put other things 
in your place. When our throne room is filled with idols and graven images. When our throne room is filled with things other than the one true God. God, we praise you. We love you. Help us to have a heart of worship. Help us to connect our hearts to you and to our church and to our family as often as we can and be proactive in that. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son. Through him we have life. Help us to always be thankful and grateful for that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.